Are you sniffing your coffee? No, I'm waiting to drink. Okay, okay drink fine. It. Hello, and welcome to this episode of A Glass of Seawater. My name is Bavin Patel, and today I am joined by Dan. Hello. Carmen. Hi. And Tom. Hey. So, today we are discussing materials and how they are relevant for fusion energy. So, first things first, before we talk about what materials are, let's figure out what our friends at the table do. So, Tom, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? You are so slow tonight. <laughs> what is up? Hey, energy. <laughs> no, he, he, said, he said wait for a pause before you start talking again. And then no, no, no. A pause me. before you make Don't a mistake. Oh, can can yeah. we start the podcast again? No, no, no. We're fine. Don't worry. This, is all, this is all comedy goals. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so you could ask me a question when I'm ready. So, Carmen, what is your PhD project about? Um, so, I work at Cullen, which is the Centre for Fusion Energy in the UK. It's currently the largest fusion reactor that we have on the, well, planet, probably. Um, it And my project's really working towards materials that have been put onto the inside wall of our reactors um, uh, with the eye to the future. So the material that's been chosen has been chosen because it's going into the next larger scale ITER reactor. And I'm looking at how hydrogen is trapped from the plasma in the wall um, for radio- radiation safety, basically. So, oh, very, very cool. Very, very cool. Thank you. So Tom, uh, what's your PhD project about? Uh, so I look at the radiation damage um, of advanced steels for fusion reactors. Uh, part of this work is at Cullum Centre for Fusion Energy, uh, which houses the materials research facility, um, which can uh, you can use the radioactive materials, and I look at the nanostructure of them to understand the fundamentals of radiation damage. Very, very cool. Almost as cool as Carmen's, but not as cool. Hey. <laughs> and Dan, uh, what do you do? What's your PhD on? Uh, right, so I use computers and maths to study um, how... Some defects, um, which are kind of large for, by large I mean thousands of atoms, hundreds of thousands of atoms, um, and these defects are responsible for metals deforming permanently. Uh, and I study these, how they interact, how they evolve in time, um, and yeah, so it's it's more fundamental, but it kind of bridges the gap between. Uh, like smaller scale stuff and larger scale, more engineering type. Right. So you're not working right at the atomic level, but you're not working at life size things. You're working no. somewhere in between. Yeah. Very, very nice. So everyone joining me here today is a material scientist. But what does that actually mean? So what do you all think a material scientist? What is a material scientist? What do you guys do? Do you want to go first, Tom? Okay, I'll go first. Um, it's a subject created by physicists when they don't understand the complex nature of Whoa. materials. <laughs> Burn! <laughs> wow. Ouch. Comments? Uh, I was going to say more along the lines of what it is. Um, <laughs> you know, the question. Um, I would say it's trying to understand the basic fundamentals of solid state. So how atoms really line up uh, once something's solidified. Take a piece of steel, for instance, you can optimize the solidification process to basically make things stronger and um, better for the application that you're particularly wanting for that component. Well, my answer is more like it depends on who you ask because all of our projects are widely different and uh, 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't really call myself a material scientist because um, I deal with more like scientific computing kind of things. So it, it I mean, as Carmen said, it's a study about the solid state. Um, but what material science is, is it's really broad because it touches on, well, it touches on chemistry. If you go to nanotechnology, it touches on physics. If you do like solid state fundamentals or even uh, superconducting, it touches on engineering. Mm -hmm. If you go like some larger scale stuff. And, well, where I'm at, which is like this weird uh, scientific computing, and there's people who are doing more mathematical type things within material science. Uh, so I guess the, the, the take-home point would be that material scientists basically do everything related to anything solid. Yes. Whether it's testing it from how strong it can be, or trying to model just to see what's actually going on on the atomic level, or even at a bigger level. Yeah, and, and we deal with surfaces as well, so like gaseous interchange and stuff like that so. so it's not even just solids you guys are just all over the place but there's also chemical reactions yeah <laughs> yeah and it's, it's kind of a bridge between physics and, and chemistry it's, it's and the nature of yeah. both so you have a, uh, like a solid state matter which is the building blocks of material science but then there's also material science defined by the chemistry the chemical reactions you have between components um, like corrosion for example it, it's, it's a phenomenon which costs the industry billions or and or trillions per year um, across the world and that's a, a fundamentally a chemical process, but material scientists deal with it. I also think that it's something that most people go into when they can't decide between a pure science. Right. So if you enjoyed maths, physics, chemistry, those sorts of things at A-level, and you're trying to keep your options open, material science is a great thing to have because, as Tom says, it interacts in so many industries. You can always optimize the process of making something. Yeah. And that's probably yeah. the best way to describe material science. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's pretty spot on because well, my undergrad was in chemistry and uh, I was going to do like maths for masters or PhD. But then I found this project and I thought, well, this is this is new, this is different, and it involves you know things that I am interested in. Um, so yeah, and I think the the, the <laughs> The real thing about material scientists is there's so many real-world applications to it, as in it, it covers just a, a ridiculously large variety of things. You've got, like, just trying to build stronger steels. You've got trying to build stuff that can resist crazy acids. You've got trying to build stuff that can withstand very, very hot temperatures. Like, anything, any material that you can think of, like, thousands of hours have gone into designing what that material is. Yes. And a good example is, like, the space shuttle tiles. Uh, You're going to steal my example. <laughs> Thief. There's actually quite, there's quite a few, but... Thief. Uh, I, I, I'll leave that one to Carmen then. Um, but there's some examples like you know, how a bridge, um, how a skyscraper actually is held up. Is sent, fundamentally, it's material science, whether that's steel or concrete. Um, we got, you know, inside of a nuclear reactor, um, that will all defined by material science. The, the How long they live for is a material science problem. You have your yeah, space shuttle is another one, um, international space station. All these sort of things are defined, and that the parameters of the operational space is defined fundamentally. Limitations of the materials. Yeah, and like people don't really appreciate it, but fun stuff like smartphones and tablets and all kinds of things. Any uh, battery power is material science. So you wouldn't have a Tesla car without the ability to module to create modules of battery power. And link them together, which I think is pretty cool. Every single material, from like plastic bags to skyscrapers, they've all had quite a bit of research into it to design, to optimize. 
Yeah, definitely. Steel's a really good one because, as an example, it started off in a very sort of like back-of-the-envelope way. So like most of our forging processes have developed over like hundreds of years, actually. And um, they might not even be the optimum way of doing something, but because the experience is there and like knowledge has been built upon knowledge, like it often happens that they're old school and they work. A good example of that is... um, when you make swords back in... Uh, I was about to say <laughs> that. that. You know, when they actually had... Just think um, of Thor. Blacksmith. <laughs> yeah. a, good, a good example is um, when you quench a hot um, rod of steel, um, they found when they used this, it, uh, the, your uh, steel was much harder and they're able to um, resist a lot more um, fighting with other people. But what they're actually really doing is a, is a thing called, we call quenching and it causes a, a transform- transformation in the crystal structure of iron um, where you don't allow it to actually diffuse because there's no time when you quench it with water. So it kind of gets stuck in a phase, in a crystal phase, where it's really hard. Um, but they were doing this over a thousand years, but I didn't really understand why. It's only until about 1950, 1940s, when we had the Martin City transformation mm-hmm. being uh, discovered by the Bain, Bain um, mechanism, yep, Bain uh, that we actually understand what that actually is. And I guess they've been mature scientists for thousands of years. Definitely, I think so. Like, how how did the caveman make his first like axe effectively? You know, even to make a sharp object out of a stone, you're going to induce cleavage down a crystallographic grain. And I can't believe I just said cleavage on radio. Um, <laughs> but basically, you're going to shear off along a orientation that the atoms can move against each other more easily. So simple things but they kind of make a big difference. What are the the challenges we face in the fusion industry with materials? I think it's a big, big question. I I would say, what is the uh, requirements of a fusion power station? You start with that. What what is it we need to to meet? Um, 24-7 power is one. Um, Maintain the, the temperature and maintain structural integrity of that reactor for its lifetime. These are sort of the questions you have to ask them. Fundamentally, it'll give you the properties you need of the material. And then when you start working that out, you realize a lot of the established materials we've got today, whether that's the nuclear industry or the aerospace, um, do not live up to the expectation of a fusion reactor. So there's major challenges facing that. The, The thing about fusion reactors are that we're basically pushing materials to the absolute limits of what's possible. Fusion reactors are incredibly crazy environments. You've got the the core of a reactor is 100 million degrees. That's like stupidly hot, hottest place (laughs) in the universe. And then you have to have a material that's maybe like 10 meters away that has to be adjacent to that. That's that's crazy. Like, how are you going to have something that's right next to something that's 100 million degrees? And there are different ways that the, the, the plasma people... Yeah, the plasma people. <laughs> the, the plasma people are trying to reduce the, the amount of heat that's going towards the edge. But we can only do so much. 100 million degrees is 100 million degrees. Definitely. It's always going to be a trade-off between plasma performance and maintaining the plasma performance in a box, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> and the box can only do so much, I think. Um, the fission industry is a good comparison but the temperatures they reach are just nowhere near what our wool materials will face. And then on the other hand, their radiation damage isn't as high either. So I think fusion is the hardest materials challenge to date. Like um, 
the, the energy loading, the power loading on the diverter. You've probably already named it in the past episodes, but it's like we hope to be under 20 megawatts per square meter. And the only material that's ever gone in that sort of order of magnitude only lasts for about three seconds in a rocket. So we definitely want our economics to work. And to do that, it's going to have to have a significantly better lifetime. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine having a rocket fired at your face for (laughs) 24-7? It's just something has to withstand that all day, every day, 24-7. It's it's crazy. So you have to figure out what materials can take away heat fast enough that it's not going to just melt the material. So we're onto heat now. So what materials do we use to try and get the heat, you know, like away from the reactor? Well... Um, in the diverter, which is the main like uh, exhaust area of the reactor where most of the heat is funneled, you have a tungsten um, armor plating, and then but the main heat source or like removal of heat source is via copper, which has the highest um, sort of thermal conductivity that we can achieve in that sort of environment. Um, but having said that, I would say it's still pretty limited. So they're working on different alloying techniques at the moment and. On top of that, you've got added requirements from uh, radiation damage that can occur in causing embrittlement, swelling. And if you think about a pipe going through a block of material, you really don't want the area and the shape of the material to change and constrict the pipe even more. But you take tungsten as an example. When you radiate tungsten in a, in a fusion spectrum, the thermal conductivity property generally decreases. So when you start off with a material which can conduct heat away sufficiently over X amount of years of being irradiated, now it cannot do that function anymore. And it, the only thing it's going to do is essentially break and crack and fall apart. So what's doing the irradiation? What's causing this change of properties? Uh, it's the neutrons that hit the tungsten and they can be, well, they can cause physical damage uh, just by recoil, like hitting an atom and it makes the atom move out of place. Uh, or they can be absorbed uh, and then that may cause transmutation and so you end up changing the chemical composition of the tungsten while at the same time changing the uh, the atomic arrangements so you get what thomas mentioned with well in common with swelling you know you get you get clustering of uh, transmutation products like rhenium and these really do affect uh, the the material a lot and so what you started with will not be the same thing that you have after three years uh, which will not be the same thing that you have after 5 or 10. The neutron that comes from our fusion reaction, so we have the two isotopes of hydrogen combining to get an alpha particle or a helium nucleus and the neutron, that neutron gets fired off and it's not contained by the magnetic field, so it's literally just like a bullet. Mm. And that bullet has to hit something eventually, otherwise it's going to go off and, I don't know, do something bad. So we have to build things that can contain this bullet. And like Daniel said... When that neutron hits the tungsten, it can do a whole bunch of things. Imagine throwing a bowling ball at some pins. It's exactly what it is, but just on a much bigger scale. It's, a, it's like a throwing an asteroid at a bunch of pins because it's just so high energy. It's just going to do a bunch of crazy stuff. <laughs> that, that is dependent on the nuclear property of the thing you're hitting. Yeah. So for tungsten, yes, the neutron appears to be some sort of asteroid size in comparison. Um, but then if you have hydrogen, for example, it's the complete opposite. Um, hydrogen scatters it rather than absorbs neutrons um, and so tungsten can, uh, generally transmutes quite heavily hence why if you start off with 100% tile of tungsten after five years you have a few percentage of rhenium, osmium and tantalum which are 
the transportation products from a tungsten. If you look at the periodic table, they sit next to each other. Um, tungsten is a, is a good example for that. Um, you don't really have this problem too much in steel. Um, in the fission industry, you don't have that too, too, too much of a problem in steel. Uh, fusion, you do, just because the order of magnitude of neutrons hitting a square meter of material uh, is much higher. It's about a thousand times higher than a fission. So industry. there's just a thousand times more neutrons hitting it per The flux area. neutrons, yeah. yes, yeah. And also um, the energy as yeah. well is so much higher. So we're talking uh, mega electron volts rather than like killer electron volts in the nuclear. Uh, in, in a fission neutron, uh, they're looking at a 0.025 EV. Yeah. So, so one fortieth EV. <laughs> smaller. So it's it's hard to get these high energy neutrons because we can't accelerate them. We can't like get them from anywhere. Nothing really produces neutrons that energy except for fusion. So we need, uh, we have to either use modeling or different ways to predict how this neutron is going to affect everything. Mm -hmm. So we have some small sources of it, so we can do some small uh, material testing. But how else can we recreate this neutron, like the super high energy neutron? Or how do we n figure out what it's going to do to the tungsten or the hydrogen? Because, I mean, as these guys mentioned, the material that you choose is going to widely affect what happens to it when it gets hit by the neutron. Like on the modeling side, obviously, because you don't have these energetic particles, you have to use uh, like known physics. And, well, you basically just put it in a computer and come up with a model. And uh, hopefully... <laughs> like, that sounds really, classic really well theorist. done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it, it, Based and, on science. However, there are a lot of pitfalls. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because you, you need to assume some things. So you need to know, like, let's say how likely it is the neutron is going to hit yeah. this specific yeah. particle. And you need to know if it does hit that specific particle, what's it going to do to the particle? Is Definitely. it going to bounce? Is it going to get absorbed? Is it going to just scatter it? Like, So some of these you have to just assume, and some of them you can try and figure out from experiments. So we're doing, I guess, a bit of both. Yeah, so experimentally, we can try and model a neutron with other particles, and that has varying levels of <laughs> success, I would say. So one of our colleagues has literally done his PhD looking at the different effects of the modeled particles. So the options are proton um, bombardment, self-ion bombardment, which is basically taking ions of the material it's like of a similar material as a source and then slamming them at your target, which sounds great. Um, and then... There you go, helium. Um, and, oh, and also you can put uh, material in a fission uh, power station, but that's very, very expensive. The whole energy range of the neutrons is different. So it's, it's probably, I don't know, the closest in terms of the interaction on a fundamental level with the atomic lattice. But our friend Jack has seen that you get very similar results with protons and yet the actual damage that's caused by self-ions is very different. So It's a very large academic question. Essentially, you need a fusion reactor to test your materials. So it's a chicken <laughs> and the egg problem, which, com which one comes first. You, you can build your fusion reactor out of current known materials from the fission industry. You know how they last for 60 years in a fission spectrum of, of neutrons. And I'll give you some indication. A good example is if your material behaves badly... In a proton irradiation, it's most likely going to be bad in the neutron irradiation. But it yeah. won't, But I wouldn't rely on 
the detailed information of say you know your material property changes by this amount by yeah. this amount of radiation from protons should, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same for a neutron damage yeah. and it's very difficult to design a reactor with that data you need uh, physical hard data which is exactly you expect it to be at this certain time at this exposure at this temperature to successfully build a power station of a fusion reactor and, and, and yeah it's a chicken and the egg problem and the problem is, is that information doesn't currently exist. So at Oxford, we work on the very small scale, how the atoms interact with incoming um, radiation damage effectively. But um, you always build a reactor out of macro scale, like forgings and materials and plates and everything like that. So we're trying to understand the fundamentals so that eventually it could scale up. Uh, and I think that's probably the best way to go about it in terms of once you understand a mechanism you can adapt your material to the problems that it faces but as we've just shown uh, the experimental evidence is quite complicated to understand uh, and in theory you know you uh, it's there's a lot of guesswork involved so who's right you you, you can't really tell until you have the experimental evidence so again it's this whole circular problem. I mean, yeah. I would say that we've made great progress. Like fundamentally, we know a lot more now than we did say even 20 years ago about radiation damage. And the culmination of that is putting materials into test reactors. Like for instance, JET is the current largest uh, fusion reactor on the planet. And the next project, ITER, will even further put the materials under strain. And we have both the small-scale experiments, uh, say, at university scales, where we implant materials with, uh, like, these type of, like, radiation damage, protons, neutrons, self-ions. But we also have larger-scale test equipment. So, like, the materials that come off from JET, whilst they haven't been under extreme conditions for long periods of time, they still tell us something. And a lot of work goes into looking at the post-mortem analysis but the, fundamentally a regulator will want to come up to us and say what can this material do under 20 years of these conditions and that's generally due to the dream of fusion being a very safe clean energy source and we've got to live up to that expectation in fission reactors we have waste at the end of the day and it can be very toxic long-lived it's not very nice to store. There are so many issues with that alone. Um, and fusion's given itself the challenge of making a waste-free reactor, which basically takes out half the periodic table of the materials that we're allowed to use. So I think, yeah, we are trying very much to make it as safe as possible. It can be completely waste-free, but you can reduce it a lot. Um, and the, the, the long-lived isotopes... Um, again, there's a lot of modeling in this um, about nuclear inventories. Uh, FacePacks, which is developed at Cullum, uh, does this. Um, it studies the time evolution of the components of, of a reactor. Um, it uses you know, other pieces of information from other codes, uh, but you can look at how the isotopes uh, change in time uh, during uh, a fusion campaign and even after uh, the reactor has been retired. This is physics that's 
very well understood, the, the half-lives of these isotopes. So we have a lot of information regarding that, and that wasn't there when fission started. So we know once we do produce some waste, we know exactly how long is it going to stay harmful for, and at what point yeah. is it to become a low-level risk. And I think we're, I mean, I'm, we're trying to get the, the waste that we produce to be... As minimal as possible. As minimal as possible. I mean, people throw this number around, like trying to get it to a low-level waste after 100 years. You could lock it in a, in a container somewhere and then leave it for 100 years. Tom is absolutely dying <laughs> to get in. I was just going to just say that the, the, the parameter, the fusion uh, community want to... Um, they want to... Uh, um, the 100-year lifetime, this 100-year number people throw around for activation of, of, of your structure... So when you have your fusion reactor, that, that fundament, fundamentally that neutron uh, will activate your materials, form a radioactive version of your element, um, which can last X amount of years of a half-life. Um, hence, so the steel is a good example. They're, they're making a low activated version of steel, which is called Eurofer. Um, but they are aiming to have, after operating, operating a fusion reactor for X amount of years, um, up to five years, continuous, and then turn it off, how many years is it until a human can go inside and actually start taking it apart. The human level is actually way beyond 100 years. It's, it's, it's a number, it's about 1,000 years before an actual human can be in the room um, of a radioactive material which has been exposed to a fusion reactor. The 100 years is for the um, remote recycling. So a lot of robotics will go into a fusion reactor to start taking it and maintaining it and taking it apart, which is what happens at JET and Kalamar are the pioneers in the world for this, this um, facility as well for robotics. So the 100 years is to do with um, how a robot goes in and takes it apart. It's, it's enough radiation for them to tolerate, not humans. Yeah, because they can fry the electronics exactly, and cameras. Yeah. And... There's the textbook answer. <laughs> <laughs> but is it, but it, people do throw that fact around and then it's misleading. Like, no, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's not a, yeah, it's just a misleading fact about fusion and how how radioactive radioactivity how free is it from it yeah compared to fission it's, it's much less compared to fission it's significantly, significantly, significantly less, less um, that, that point should be really clear that is clear yeah so so the, the, and also the, how you classify waste is yeah um the worst stuff in a fission plant is high level waste comes from the core in a fusion reactor they don't have any of that there's no high level waste it's all intermediate it's, it, it, there's numbers defined which defines intermediate and all the structure is essentially intermediate level waste, uh, which we can easily deal with today. It's it's not a significant issue. That's just it's just the steel structure you're talking about, the tungsten tiles, uh, any of the breeder blankets, which we haven't gone on to about. But all these sort of things will need to go into some sort of waste management um, uh, regime of these fusion reactors. But uh, we are we've already started to make progress on that. So like you mentioned, race earlier today. It's essentially like remote automatic. I'll figure it out. There's, it's an acronym. It is an acronym. We should, we and should, I work at Cullum, and I'm still not quite sure. We should know. The, <laughs> yeah. the building's around the corner from where we work. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. I think the best way to describe radiation to people is the, the banana equivalence dose. <laughs> it is a really good way of yeah. visualizing how radioactive <laughs> materials are. So I have some radioactive material on my desk. Oh, I just can't believe you just admitted that. I know, right? Jeez. <laughs> there's, there's, there's actually quite a lot of it in my drawer, depending on the context. So it's worth about eight bananas. 
<laughs> we, uh, just to be clear, because it's a radio show, we have two bananas on the table. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there's an online calculator. If you type in banana um, equivalence dose, a banana has potassium 40. Potassium 40 has um, a, certain, a ratio of potassium in, in, in nature, and the 40 version is radioactive. So um, you can eat, uh, if you eat enough bananas, you can, you can um, have, induce radiation poisoning. That um, is not true. That, that is, is not. no way. It's on the level of... Is it, no, you have if to you eat do, like if you, hundreds if you, of bananas. If you run the numbers, it is the th- it's in the thousands of bananas. You'll die of other things, of of potassium poisoning, <laughs> and the radiation poisoning. Yeah. Um, but it is significant. Like, I think that's the best way for people to understand how radioactive... Because um, I remember speaking to one of our office friends saying, oh, is that radioactive? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, it's about four bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's, well. It, it's a bunch of bananas, nearly. You know, yeah. it's, it's fine. It's, it's not... It's Put not. Yes, Colin, yeah. So I have a little anecdote to tell, but I used to work at Sellafield, which is a fission power station up in the north of Cumbria. Yeah, and um, at the barrier, when you go into the site, when you're handling radioactive materials, I shouldn't say handling because it's all behind like concrete and you remote handle, just to be clear. But um, you always get sort of like checked if you're, if you're holding any contamination, radiological contamination on your clothing as you exit the building, just obviously for your own safety and others. And someone left a packet of bananas near the, the sort of checking facility <laughs> and they set the whole building off. <laughs> so we all had to do an emergency evacuation, stand outside and then like one by individually get like checked. And it, we were there for four hours just because of like six oh. bananas. So yeah, it, it does happen. Are you serious? That happened. Yeah. Oh my god, that's amazing. It, like, yeah, bananas are quite. In, in compared to background radiation, they're quite radioactive. <laughs> so I guess the, the the point is that radiation is relative. It's it's all about yeah, it's all about context. Yeah. It's all about context with radiation. It's one of the most misunderstood phenomena in the world. Uh, it's shrouded by fear, um, mainly due to the lack of understanding and and people um, giving. Miss facts, which are just not true yeah. about and it. I think it's fake it, news. <laughs> I don't no. want to say that. I don't want to drop the level. <laughs> Let's not go there. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that causes fear is that you can't detect it, you can't touch, taste, or smell mm. it, or anything like that. But in a radiological environment, say like a fission, fusion power station, or whatever, where you're dealing with isotopes of any kind. I would say you're safer than you are in a chemical environment because it's very heavily monitored. You you know where it is, you deal with it properly. Whereas there are chemicals like benzene that can give you cancer and they're in petrol. So yeah. like it's, well, risk is always relative. Everyone gives radiation a really hard time of it. And if it's monitored and managed properly like anything else, it can be okay. A superconductor is a conductor that has no resistance, Mm -hmm. so you can drive a lot of current and then uh, thus get a large magnetic field without it heating up or doing crazy stuff. There's also the critical current and critical magnetic fields that they can operate under. So there's a limit to... Yeah, so I mean, superconductors do have a limit, but that limit is significantly higher than regular conductors, hence they are super... Yes, and the <laughs> magnetic fields they achieved are substantial as a result. I mean, the key thing about superconductors is that oh, 
with my limited understanding of plasma physics, if you increase the magnetic field strength, you can significantly improve the retention time of the plasma. And I think that's something that small modular reactors are are looking at heavily. And um, but again, superconductors are massively impacted by neutron damage. So there's evidence to show that when the neutron comes into the material, uh, some of the damage that it does that changing the atomic arrangements initially is very helpful, and then very rapidly it decreases properties and you lose the superconducting property. So yeah, over time, neutron damage is crucial to superconductors working or not working. I would say that is, that is to follow on from Carmen, that is crucial. There's also really innovative ways you can get, not get around these issues, but mitigate against them, um, is you can design a shield between the superconductor and, and, and say the plasma, shield essentially the neutrons, have some sort of sacrificial material which can reduce your load of neutrons onto your superconducting material. Yeah, it, it, it's a superconductivity is a, one of the most crucial technologies to fu- to realizing fusion as a power source. Mm-hmm. I would say. I think though, just talking about superconductors shows the level of technology and engineering that's got to go into any uh, economically viable fusion power plant. Because we just said, oh well, one option is to shield them, but every time you add another layer of complexity the engineering requirements increase tenfold. And also there's the simple things that you can imagine that inside the poloidal uh, field coils, for instance, that give you the cross-section of a torus shape uh, where the plasma is going to be, every time you add in another layer, you're, you could be reducing yeah. your plasma volume, which is the thing that's going to produce the power and then effectively the money at the end of the day. So you've got to be really careful of like your real estate and how you manage all these areas and volumes uh, yeah. alongside all of the other requirements. Yeah, I mean, if you're more shielding means less plasma, means less uh, power, power, which means less money, which yeah. means sad faces. But just to bring back Harman's point about fusion energy in general, the the significant challenges we face on all aspects, whether it's like the physics, the superconducting of it, um, trying to, we haven't really mentioned about breeding the fuel on on um, on the fly and extracting that fuel as well and maintaining the repository of it <laughs> and then also managing to inject it at the same time, also <laughs> yeah. extracting the heat away and making <laughs> the electricity to the grid um, and making sure that your structure stays as a structure. Um, under the stresses magnetic field to temperatures the thermal gradients the shock shock um, all these sort of things which makes uh, for me fusion is one of the most exciting places to actually do research on because they're 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 extremes of nearly all the properties we know of um, and and we don't have answers for all of it but that doesn't mean we won't have answers for all of it Mm. i mean think of some weird thing and fusion probably has some environment in there like things are being bent in weird ways, things are being yeah. burnt in weird ways, things are being frozen in weird ways, things are being irradiated in weird ways. Everything's being done in weird ways. Even 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 constructing this these these sort of reactors, we're looking at three D printing very complex geometries to to cool like the tungsten tiles. Yeah. Um, these are sort of innovations which won't which go beyond fusion in general. It'll go to all sorts of um, in, uh, industries. So it's not just. The, the research which has been conducted, whether it's at Cullum or other national labs around the world, 
aren't just related to fusion alone they do branch out quite significantly the, the technology yeah. um which has been developed is cross multidisciplinary across all sectors so there's also something else to consider as well well it shows in the funding sources doesn't it <laughs> i think it's it's cool that fusion is that innovative like that we want it to succeed in so many different ways that we're willing to just look across and see if anyone else has come up with any cool ideas mm. and implement them and see if under our advanced conditions they can handle it. That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. Even though I may have not been in it. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.